Hello everyone and welcome to the Bootstrap Founder. Today I'm talking to Patrick Campbell, founder of Profitwell, a bootstrap business that recently got acquired by Paddle for a whopping $200 million. I talked to Patrick about getting acquired for nine figures, finding your footing as a founder after such an incredible exit, where the online payment industry is heading, and how mental health challenges follow us wherever we go. Here's Patrick. After you sell a business that you bootstrap to whatever $200 million, you pretty much have infinite options and you chose to join Paddle, the payment provider that acquired your business. And now you're working with them, for them, to get them to IPO. Man, you've been working in digital payment platforms for years now, probably decades at this point. And I feel your work is foundational and has impacted thousands, if not millions of people. And I always wonder, like, you made it possible for so many people to make money and to get better at pricing and all that stuff. Did you get into entrepreneurship with that in mind? Was empowering people to make a living a motivating force for that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And thank you for the kind, I'm going to I'm gonna take some of those as kind words. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, you know what's funny? I never wanted to be in entrepreneurship. I... Um, Ever. Like I never, like I, there are things that were entrepreneurial in my past that I can point to like when I was a kid. Um, and I always was thinking about, you know, how to make, make some money, you know, to like spend on stuff, just random stuff. But I think what was really interesting is, um, I wanted to be a doctor at first, then a lawyer, you know, very stereotypical blue collar kid, you know, your parents are blue collar, so you can go, you know, get a professional degree. And then, um, I ended up working for the government uh, and that kind of probably was my best entrepreneurial training, not because it was entrepreneurial, but because it was so bureaucratic. And I was like this, I, I, I finally was like, I don't, I, there's something I don't like. And I loved that job, but there's something I don't like about it. Um, and that, that was when I worked for the intelligence community. Um, and so then I was like, oh, let's go work in tech because tech was like the hot, you know, it's still the hot thing, but it was the hot thing then. And I went and worked at Google and it was also very bureaucratic. And so I was thinking like, oh, like, you know, it's not a vertical thing. And then I jumped into a startup. Um, and that's when I was like, okay, like I could actually do this. And, and the confidence thing was the hardest thing for me was, was getting the confidence to know that I could find a job. Like I can go find a job being a barista, digging ditches, construction, like worst case scenario, I can figure that out. And then even with ProfitWell, I never, I, I know we, we help a lot of people make more money. Like that's kind of the goal of the business, um, with our tools and stuff. But even then, like that's not the thing that gets me gets me up every day. It's it's the it's the puzzles. Like I, I like the puzzles. I like the okay. How do we make this more efficient? How do we get more leverage out of this? Um, and the the like the the growing. Like I like that a lot. Um, and and I think that's that's the game of it that I really fell in love with because the feedback cycle is so quick. Um, so yeah, that's 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 more of why I got into it and what I think about it versus versus anything else. That makes sense. I mean, I in, in what you do and how you do it, I think you, you can tell that you love the challenge of like collecting yeah. data, finding insights and that kind of stuff. But you also, you don't just do it in your own little basement, right? You don't just like yeah. kind of do it in secret. You do it in a very public way. And, and that mm -hmm. is both extremely appreciated, right? By the community and by people just as myself trying to figure out how to price their business because I was a uh, ProfitWell user back in the day when I ran my own SaaS. I, got it. Mm. I think I still am with the other SaaS that I'm running too because nice. it's a free tool. So, you it's know, why user. wouldn't you, right? <laughs> yeah. But the, the fact that you not only offer this product and the, the consulting around it that you, that you do in public, the, the fact that you are so actively teaching people, I think that kind of sets you apart from other people in the field. Because I feel m money is a field where people usually like keep things to themselves, but you have a very strong like public teacher persona if i can call it that yeah is, is that intentional um yes and no i think i think it is innate i i went to the college i went to on a debate scholarship um and debate people think of arguing that's not really what you're doing you're you're learning how to like both communicate and essentially teach because you're teaching you know this logic or this logic and that logic in your tint therefore is better than this other logic right um, or, you know, and not going super deep into like speech and debate, but so that was like a thing that was in my high school and college years that was really, really big. So it is innate because I spent 40 hours a week for four years writing speeches, basically like it was a full-time job. But I think that when we started kind of our marketing path, there's this phrase called help sells. 
and help is it, we we were in a unique position where um, basically we were we were in a field pricing and churn and metrics where everyone kind of knows they're important. Everyone's a little not confident in their knowledge about it, and they're always looking for something extra. And when you're in one of those fields and you start helping and you start like actually like giving away secrets or making them feel like secrets, people really respond and you gain like a really good brand and a reputation. And we knew we were starting to get to a good place with this when one, some of our competitors asked us to stop publishing so much content because they wanted to sell the content, like especially uh -huh. these pricing consultants, they were, yeah. they were selling the same, like we were basically giving away the deck that they were selling to every single one of their companies, okay. uh, or their customers. And then, um, we started to have a lot of people feel bad for how much value they were getting. And when you start to have that, it's a really good thing because that means when you're like, well, great, well, why didn't you get on the phone and basically listen to us pitch, like not using these words, using different words, obviously. And it was a really easy, like, oh yeah, of course. Right. And that, that's when you kind of know that that help is actually selling. And so, yeah, I think it is innate, but it's also, it, it is a strategy. Like it's definitely a strategy because, you know, we were in this market. I think there's some markets that if we were in that didn't like everyone knew about it, like we probably would still educate, but it'd be a much lower like priority in terms of how we would market and build our brand and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I always felt like with ProfitWell and Price Intelligently, both kind of arms of the business, it was it was an interesting thing for a SaaS founder to do or to watch you do. Because, you know, having a free massive offering with what the ProfitWell tool itself did and then having the Price Intelligently consulting side of it, that was just something that I've never really seen before in, in such a broadly accepted field like pricing or, or pri yeah. Yeah, the, the whole SaaS pricing metrics field. I've, I found that to be novel, very interesting. Also, yeah, in, in some way, it kind of is, is uh, really hurtful in, in a competitive sense, right? If you can't build mm -hmm. something just like this, you have to charge money for that SaaS yeah. business that you guys offer for free. And if you then also use that knowledge to facilitate getting clients for price intelligently, that feels hard to compete with. Can you tell yeah. me more about this distinction and how that came to be? Yeah, the distinction, just make sure I understand you correctly, the distinction between like helping providing free value and then selling something is that is that yeah I, I guess the, the yeah, yeah the distinction that you had between this this massive tool with ProfitWell and these specific yeah. consulting clients with Price Intelligently and how you kind of connect these two that would be interesting to know yeah totally so the the thing that was really powerful about us is we started with this software product that helped with pricing then we ended up knowing that. That, like that product had like it very quickly became what's called a tech enabled service which is like you, you, you there's software and there's data but you're buying it with service if that makes sense and so i think it's one of those things that um we got lucky in the sense that we didn't take some of the advice out there which was like don't do services right because everyone's like the multiples on services aren't the same and it's kind of like well yeah but if i'm caring about ebitda which therefore fuels my business and I can get 50 to 75% gross margin out of a service business. Like I'm going to take that money all day in the early days, as long as it feeds ultimately the, the greater mission. Right. And this is a mistake. A lot of people, like there's some people who are like, Oh, a service business can't turn into a software company. Well, a lot of times it can't because the owners, the founders get very addicted to that cash and start taking it out of the business rather than hiring the engineers, hiring the designers, et cetera. So it has to be a very specific strategy. And for us, it became that strategy where we were getting paid to do our customer development. And therefore what ends up happening is, um, we, we became this like really interesting, unstoppable force in terms of a loop because we would give away free content. Then we were giving away this free product. Then we were able to start monetizing that free product with pure software because we had this monetization with the pricing product and our logo brand aspect got so good because we weren't able to build something from a software perspective that would fulfill the needs of a very large company, but we could give them the service. And then all of a sudden the product would start to get better and better and better. And all of a sudden we could go back to them and be like, Hey, you know, you're not doing the pricing work anymore, but we have this new product. You'd be really interested. And they, they had a good experience. So they were like, Oh yeah. So I think when it's a really, really direct strategy, it makes sense. And it's really hard to compete with because all of a sudden, like 
I don't need to go raise money because I'm mm. constantly getting new money and funding every single quarter um, as that those deals get closed. Now, it's complicated because there's a lot of reactionary stuff that ends up happening internally because client work comes up, it's distracting. So, so we got to a point where we were able to kind of coordinate it off inside the business and then the problems became that team feeling a little isolated. But then when you have a good vision or what we think is a good vision to kind of split the gap, it allowed that team to like feel excited about their contribution, even though they weren't like directly contributing to the new products, um, they were allowing us to be able to, to build those products. And so, yeah, I think it's something that's really powerful. It's just a strategy that a lot of people can't, can't really get right. And I think it's because they end up just trying to take all the profit out of the business. And it's like, when you look at it as funding and customer development, like we wouldn't have built, like if someone was like, we'll pay you to build a website, like we wouldn't have done that. But it was very specific to like inside the role that we were trying to have within these companies. It, it certainly has a certain complexity to it that as a solo founder, I would find kind of freakishly complicated, you know, like the idea of building a free product and having free education materials to then monetize it through a service that then pours money back into yeah. the development of the product. It feels like for a bootstrapper, it, that, that is not the first thing that comes to mind. It's funny, though, yeah. that this meant that you could actually keep bootstrapping the product and the whole business. Yeah. Well, I think bootstrappers, we think too small. Like, and I think that's fine, but I think the problem is, is you have to understand what you want. And I, it's really hard to understand what you want. And if you want a, a, if you want to work really hard to then relatively quickly within a year or two, start to lower the number of hours and keep the number of revenue, like, like this is the lifestyle business, which unfortunately has become like, I don't know why it's derogatory, but I think yeah. people use it as a derogatory, like a pejorative. But if that's what you want, great. But I think a lot of us get stuck in this, well, that's not what I want. I want to build the big company in the base camp. And it's like, yeah, the problem is, is that base camp was built in a very different world. 99% of their traffic's direct. That's, that's really hard to like, like create again in this world of SaaS. But if you want something really, really big, you have to be able to, you know, give up short-term gain for, or, or have some short-term pain for that long-term gain, as they say, right? And I think that's the thing with a lot of bootstrappers is, or indie hackers, however you want to kind of define it, is like, know what you want and then like go after it. Um, and there's, there's plenty of examples where people are like, I want to go big, but not raise money. So I'm going to go a little slower. That's the trade-off. And then all of a sudden they start building and they realize, no, I kind of want to like, just work a day a week. You know, I got my software working. It's all the markets moving, all that kind of stuff. And that's great. Um, and you should be okay with that. But I think, I think that's the problem where people, they don't bridge that gap to like going for it. Um, we were like, we're willing to go to zero. We're willing to go after this, like, because we're trying to build a big company, but it's just, it's just a different way of, of thinking about it. I think. Yeah, I think you need role models. Like in, in our community in particular, where it's very people-centric. You need those people yeah. that have done it before. And I guess you're now that person. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, I don't know. You know? <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's really funny. I almost resent it a little bit because like none of my advice has changed in like, mm. let's say the past year. Like it's changed over a decade, but like it hasn't changed in the past year. Now people listen to me so much more just because <laughs> we had an exit. And when you've gone through an exit, you realize like, yes, you, you, it doesn't feel like you're winning the lottery. Cause you're like, well, no, we worked really hard for this and we did this and this is the outcome, but there's definitely some luck involved. There was timing involved. So it's almost like one of those things where it's like, you know, you stick to running the race. And so, but now all of a sudden, cause you have, you know, a, a you know, nine figure exit, people are like listening, which is fine. Like I'll take it. It's just, it resent, it's a little resentful. Cause it's not like anything's changed. It's, it's, I just have more, uh, more uh, evidence of why something will work. Um, and even then, like, you know, you shouldn't take my word for it. You should follow the data or the logic, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So don't listen to Patrick, but let's, let's keep talking to Patrick. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I get, get what you're saying. There's always this kind of credibility boost from something public, right? Like from some public yeah. activity and obviously nothing changed in terms of, uh, the, the real, real realism of the advice you're giving or the applicability, yeah. how much ever there is right in any kind of, uh, anecdotal or exemplary advice, but you know, that's just what it is. People need to filter in some way. It's and I human. feel, yeah, it's a human thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, it's a way for us to be able to even handle a society at a larger scale, but let, let's talk about the exit. I, I think that that is a. One of the, probably the biggest acquisition I've ever seen in the indie hacker adjacent space, let's just call it that, because everybody, there's a lot involved, right? And pro 
probably also one of the most well-documented. I don't think like anybody filmed a documentary doing this while they were doing it. And honestly, when I watched it the first time it came out, like what was it, half a year ago or something, or a while ago, let's just not date this in, in particular. I was like, how did this man find not only the time to deal with this crazy acquisition, but also have the kind of the precincts to have a movie team there recording the whole thing like, how, did, how did you navigate this like from the start yeah. that seems like such a such a troublesome and stress inducing activity yeah well we so we always it's a very indie or bootstrapper mindset at least in my opinion where you're like if i'm gonna invest time or money how do I hedge the decision or hedge the time or the money, right? Mm. So we've we've been doing this for years where um, we're going to sponsor as a bootstrapped or indie company, uh, Saster, which is like the highest concentration of our customers, but it's still hundreds of thousands of dollars to not only sponsor, but send 12 people there and buy t-shirts and all this other stuff, right? And so what we would do is we would do things like, okay, we're going to do that, but then we're also going to make sure we have the right marketing plan and we're going to record a bunch of content because worst case scenario, you know, if we don't sell any more deals or don't get any like attribution from this, we have 12 episodes of podcasts, right? Because mm -hmm. I would record interviews and stuff and all the people we want to record, they show up in person. In person is, is better than online, but online is a good, is a good, uh, is a good second place here. But so long story short, like we've always had that mindset and what was kind of cool. And I think what made the, the, the acquisition and, and kind of, um, coming together as, as two companies great is we had kind of a calculus moment where on our side, we were like, as soon as we signed the LOI and the way that we kind of made that decision is, um, Facundo, Peter and I, who are like kind of the core business partners, we're going to make the ultimate decision, but we brought in about an additional five people who are kind of like, um, you know, a good red team. Um, and we presented the options. We had a couple of options, um, not just joining paddle and that red team. One of the people in there was Dan who leads the, the recur studios team. And to make a long story short, I ended up, um, telling him, I was like, okay, let's just record the process and let's just record as much as we can because worst case scenario, this falls apart. We can put together a series or a documentary or something about, what it's like to go through being acquired and then the cliffhanger can be it didn't work out or it did work out. And what's kind of cool is Andrew, the CMO over at Paddle, what, you know, believes in content and these types of things. And he had not a similar from like a failing perspective. Um, he's a lot more positive than I am. Um, but he was basically like, oh, like it would be just really be cool to record this and see how, you know, this all works out. Right. And what you'll notice is a lot of the, um, a lot of the content is from, later in the diligence process because mm -hmm. it got closer and closer to, okay, this is going to work, or this is, you know, we went from 50% chance to 75% chance to 90% chance. And so that's when the production went up, like there, there's a voicemail, that's the actual voicemail, um, or the voice note I sent Christian around like the number and stuff like that. Um, so we just kind of recorded everything, um, which, you know, makes lawyers really, really excited, you know, when you record <laughs> everything, but, uh, yeah, it was good. So it was, yeah, it, it's, I think that's the thing of like, the lesson there is like always be thinking about these pieces, but also like it's an acquisition isn't something that people get a lot of insight into, right? Unless you go through it. And so that was one of those things like back to teaching. We really wanted to do is like, make sure everyone, you know, could kind of see everything. Yeah. How, how did you navigate like having all of this attention on the process and not scaring your team or your co-founders or yourself like at, yeah. at the same time? It was really hard. Like not in, in terms of like the documentary, it was easy because it was just kind of me recording. So that was easy. Um, and a lot of the conversations amongst the team, we, we, we wouldn't record those, but I think in terms of just the diligence process, um, the, the hardest part was having eight people all super crucial inside the business, um, pretty much distracted, you know, for those three months and not, we, we really protected them. So it was myself and Andrew who runs, um, kind of our operations in finance we were the only ones really involved in the day to day, like getting on the phone with the lawyers, dealing with this fire that came up. Oh, this fire drill happened, like those types of things. And then we kept a Slack channel with the group who was in the know. And then over time, more people got in the know because of this or that. And we just, I just kind of made sure to constantly like update them a bit and just constant, like, Hey, I know like there's some anxiety around this or stuff, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then constantly reminding them like, 
don't pull out a calculator. Don't try to calculate like the money. Cause again, this can all fall apart. Like just really reminding them up until the day before it closed, like this can all fall apart. Right. And I think that like it helped maybe because it just got rid of the short-term anxiety. Like if, if it did fall apart, it would have been, it would have been really tough because especially given what's happened this year, um, because all of a sudden, you know, we were in a position where we definitely were, were ready to raise money at least, let alone sell. And so, yeah, it's just is one of those things where it can be hugely, hugely distracting, but like bifurcating the team as much as humanly possible from, from the day to day, I think helps. And frankly, like having a couple of conversations, like there were definitely some arguments, um, mostly with, with, um, Facundo and me or Peter and me, um, or the three of us where like Peter needs something. And I would just be like, Hey, like you, you have to figure this out. Like you have to figure this out. Like, and, and that, that causing some friction and, you know, us getting into it, like brothers, that type of a thing, just because like, there's just so much going on. And, and, you know, there's a lot of short-term thinking that ends up incepting people when this stuff happens and, and just trying to keep, keep them on track is really, really tough. Was, was there anything specific that kind of tripped you up that now in retrospect seems kind of petty or pointless? Yeah. Like there's a lot of things there were, there were uh, like the thing when you're, you're getting acquired or you're, you're acquiring someone and it depends on the size of the deal, but there's always like disclosures and there's always like all this stuff that goes into the agreement. Like if this happens, if this other thing happens, then this happens. And I'm sure it, it's like, there's, let's say there's 70 bullets and there's lots more than 70, but it's like 67 of those will not matter. You just don't know which 67, right? And so you kind of have to treat every single one. So there will be a lot of like petty, not not petty, but there will be a lot of things where it's like, yeah, remember when we spent 10 grand in lawyer fees on that bullet point? Um, I think in the context of what I was talking about, though, I think like there were just there was just little things like, hey, can I get budget for this? And it's like, no, we're in this stage where every dollar gets reported, right? And I don't think the $5,000 we want to spend on this travel is going to tip something over, but I would rather not have that be a conversation when I have these three other conversations like in flight. And that's the other thing. There's a lot of like multi-threading going on and you're kind of like taking and, and not consciously, like it's not like the movies, but you, you are subconsciously and in some case, I guess consciously being like, well, I'm going to give a little here because I want to get a little over here. And it's, it's a lot of that stuff happening. And I think that, um, yeah, it's hard, it's hard for the team to empathize because they're not in the know because you've, you've separated them out, but you've separated them out because you don't want them to have to handle the totality of all the anxiety that the ups and downs on a day-to-day -day basis where the lawyers are like, I don't know how we're going to figure this out. And then it's like, we figure it out. Oh, I don't know. There's this problem now. Oh, this came back in diligence. Oh, this came back in diligence. Oh, Uh, we have to go get the money for this. And, you know, this person, you know, they, they gave us a term sheet and then they rescinded it. Like all that type of stuff happening. Um, like they can't know all the context because it really has to be on one person. And so that it was, it was an extremely peaceful and actual peaceful like situation until there was like the bubbles needing to, to kind of be combined in certain cases because, You know, I think founders were, were really good at crises typically. And so it was just kind of like a really long crisis. Um, it's just your team isn't always good with that. And, you know, it's hard for, to like communicate with them. So I didn't really give you a specific, you know, petty thing, but um, there were plenty of like little charges, right? Like we had this pro, here's a, here's a good one. We had this program, like this benefit we were doing where like someone would get a flight if they did this thing. Well, in between sign and close, um, we did a split sign and close. So you sign one day and then there's some things you have to do and then you close, you know, some of our team was like, oh yeah, let's sneak these charges in, you know, before this like happens because then, because we don't know what's going to happen after we close. And I was like, guys, that, that line was three months ago. Like that line of sneaking stuff in, like now we are, we have to disclose everything and a $3,000 charge probably gets looked at. And again, like I was saying before, probably not something that we want to have to have a conversation about. So, but like, they don't understand that fully because they don't understand all the other bullets that you've talked through. So yeah, just little, little stuff like that. It's, it's, it's definitely, you're bringing back the memories now. So yeah, it's interesting. Well, I, I hope that's okay. <laughs> because, yeah, yeah, totally. You know, totally. That's, that's the kind of thing you don't get to see. And, uh, I think the too many cooks metaphor certainly Makes a lot of sense here, right? That the more people are yeah. involved with their own little 
goals, short-term goals that yeah, they may have. Yeah. Like obviously that uh, derails the process. Very interesting. Let me take a second to tell you about the sponsor of the show. Microquire is a free startup acquisition marketplace that connects founders with serious buyers to help get their online businesses sold quickly and easily. Microquire has been sponsoring my podcast since the beginning, and I'm excited to share their plans to help more bootstrap founders succeed. Starting in 2023, they're rebranding to acquire.com to show the world that they can help startups of any size get acquired. Their mission is the same, to help founders achieve life-changing outcomes and continue building game-changing tools that make acquisitions easy for all. With over 35,000 messages sent between buyers and sellers in any given month, hey, if you're thinking about testing the acquisition waters, now is the time to join Acquire.com. Could you describe your kind of your your own like anxiety levels like throughout this journey? I, I'm saying this because I remember my own journey um, of selling my business, and I was a pretty at a pretty high burnout point before we sold. Then it kind of tipped up a little bit because there was a lot of you know due diligence and stuff. But it then very quickly flatlined because there was it, it worked out pretty well for me. Let's just say that. So how how was that for you, and how is it right now now that you yeah uh, passed that? It's a good a question. I think that. Um... My anxiety levels leading up to the LOI, I was very, very calm because our BATNA, like our, our, you know, worst case scenario to use more common parlance was, oh, we just, we have a profitable business. We just keep building, right? Maybe we don't build it as fast. There isn't, you know, exit money, that type of a thing, but we just keep building it. And I think what was really interesting too was when we looked at what was going on, it was... I needed a break. Like I was going to take January off <laughs> and then this conversation started in November and, you know, running around on flights and all that kind of stuff to figure out, you know, trying to get multiple different suitors and stuff like that. In right before the LOI, there was some, there was some, there was some stuff that like, um, I have kind of a, a, a let's just say a, um, very fragmented founder story. I had some like folks that we thought were going to come on, but the paperwork wasn't great. Then they didn't end up coming on so that like we had to kind of fix the paperwork. We didn't fix it like in the moment. We kind of like, all right, let's fix it over time. And so there, there, there was some cleanup that needed to happen before the LOI. So there was a lot of anxiety right there because we were trying to accelerate something. And then the folks involved, you know, not necessarily unfairly were like, well, we didn't get to these you know, 12 or 18 month milestones. So we should just stop here. And I was like, well, that's not going to be, that's not going to work for me because it was, it was a little bit of protecting my own piece, but also making sure that like other people got what I thought that they deserved. So that was, that was kind of tough to, to kind of think through. Um, we got there and then in the, in the actual diligence period, there was, there was, it was, it was almost like I, I hurry up and wait like that phrase. It was a lot of that. So it was like, you have nothing going on and you have to keep your calendar open because as soon as that next email comes in, you got to jump on it, right? So we would like jump on it, get the answer, and then you kind of like wait again. And so there was these little ups and downs and there were some different like diligence things around like, you know, what, you know, Paddle being a European company and really caring about certain things that a lot of US companies just don't care about and, and vice versa as well. And so there's like little things here and there. And so the anxiety was good and then the anxiety kept going down each day. Um, and, um, I, I, I love those like fire moments. Um, I do really well with those, uh, almost to the detriment because like, sometimes I'll make a fire out of something that doesn't need a fire. Right. And so as we got towards, um, like we signed, we, there was one thing that was tough and I'm not going to say what it is, but there was one thing that like everything else, if it didn't happen between sign and close, like we were good. There was one thing that really needed to get done. Um, to the point where we were willing to spend an exorbitant amount of money to fix it. Um, it's nothing bad or it's just like we needed to clean one thing up. And so that had some anxiety. And then as soon as we closed, like a serenity that I've never felt. And also like, I don't know if I fully remember it. Like right. I slept so well, everything was so comfortable because you like, you're on this like grind and you have this, this tension in your, 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 your stomach and your head because you're always kind of like on, like it's kind of like very PTSD. Like you're always just kind of wound up as being a founder, even if you're, you know, lifestyle or all that kind of fun stuff, because 
you know, you're always like, well, something could break and I have to be the one to kind of take care of it. And it was just a moment where I was like, none of this is on my shoulders theoretically anymore. And then all of a sudden the anxiety over the last like six to eight months has crept back up different type of anxiety. Now it's existential anxiety. Now, you know, I have more money than any generation in my family tree will ever need. So now there's this responsibility of like, what do I do? Right. And I'm not one to like, you know, just, I, I'm not a person who can just like live a great life. You know, I'm just not wired that way. Um, and so now it's like, there's a pressure that I'm building up totally self-inflicted around, well, I have to, I have to build something else. Was this mm. a fluke? Blah, 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 wow. blah, like this, that, all this other stuff. And then what, what makes it kind of worse is my role was kind of up in the air. Like it was like, we're going to do something. We're going to have impact, all this other stuff, which, which, you know, I am, but it's like, we're not really sure where. And so over the past like six months, we've been like, well, maybe it's this, ah, it doesn't make sense. Maybe this, maybe this. And it's no one's fault. Like everyone's like, you know, very earnest to like figure everything out. And there's a bunch of stuff I've been doing, but that like, I don't have my lane. I, I I'm having this like existential, like, what do I do? Jenny and I, like, what do we want our family to do? All this other stuff. Like it's a lot of interesting, like champagne problems to kind of consider. And I would say I was kind of like this. And then now I'm like evening out again. Um, just with realizations and, you know, acclimating to everything. So I don't know if that's really useful to anybody except from just hearing it. But uh, yeah, it's you know what? I, I had uh, obviously not at that scale, but I had the, the, I went through the same steps. Like, and I yeah. think the more founders I talk to who sell their business, they all have the exact same experience. Yeah. And it, I, I think it's very important that people know that no matter what, how many digits that number has that you yeah. sell for, the person behind it. And I, I, I exactly understand that feeling. When the money hit our account for selling Feedback Panda, we're looking at each other and we're saying, nothing is different. Like we, we yeah. still feel like we need to prove ourselves to somebody. We still need yeah. to have a passion kinda, to follow. Which kind of right? sucks, right? Like yeah. it kind of sucks. Because you're like, I wish that just would fill that hole, yeah. right? Like Wouldn't the money nice? fill the hole. Because <laughs> it doesn't take that much probably to fill that hole theoretically. Yeah. It's just your wiring. And I think for me, the, the thing I kind of came to is... Um, you amplify the best and the worst of you mm -hmm. in, in an exit. Like it's, it's not like, Hey, if you're unhealthy, you're instantly going to be healthy. It's easier to get healthy, but it's also one of those things where you're like, Oh, it's really easy for me to get the things to be healthy. And I'm still not doing it. Oh yeah. my God. This you is should, who I am. You, you know, should see no my gym excuse. that I'm not using. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, right. And you're like, well, I'm going to start a gym and I'm going to get this. And then all of a sudden like, ah, I'm not really going to it. Right. And that's, yeah, man, it's it, it, a lot of champagne problems, a lot of champagne problems. You know, there's still problems, but it's, it, it is, it is interesting. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. They certainly, you, you graduate to new problems, but they are still problems. And they, I think they feel just as present, if not more present than the problems you had before, right? Yeah. You, you kind of, now you have something to protect that if it falls away, just levels you to levels you down to something where you I don't want to be ever again. I never feared death mm -hmm. ever. Never thought, like I actually was like, yeah, I could die tomorrow and fine. Cause I was like fighting up the hill, you know, Sisyphean task up the hill. All of a sudden I started fearing death. Like I was just like, Oh God, you know, it was kind of weird. Cause you're, cause you get that protect mode. You're like, well, I made it now. What if I lose it? Right. And you're just a human. Right. And you have that, you have that paranoia, like a lot of founders, not every founder, but you have some of that paranoia in the business in general. Like the only, only the paranoid survive as Andy Grove would say. Right. But all of a sudden it's like, now you're paranoid on multiple levels and it's, I'm not as paranoid anymore. I don't think about death as much anymore. Like, I'm more acclimated, but it's, it's a, you know, you're going through a big life event and I don't know, it's, it's, it's a life event that's very instant and it feels, it's not like I imagine, I don't have a kid, but it's not like I imagine have a kid or I imagine have uh, you know, something cause you're kind of like, you're dealing with, you know, the kid nine months, you know, growing and then comes and then it kind of doesn't do much and starts to do much. And there's like this really like, it's, it's not yeah. slow, but it's, it's yeah. got a gradual like gradation and you know, it, it spikes up in certain places here. It's like, it doesn't happen until it happens. And then when it happens, it happened. And then you're like, okay, what do I do? And I had, um, I talked to 30 founders before, um, selling, um, half of them regretted it, but I don't, I've, I've realized now going through my own experience, I don't think they truly regret selling. I think that they went through a very similar feeling that I went through and it's just, well, I shouldn't have done it. And it's like, no, like I kind of have this feeling I should have still done it. Like it was the right logical move, but 
now I have to deal with these feelings and grow as a human. I'm not saying these folks didn't grow as a human, but of those 15 who said they didn't, they shouldn't have sold, um, a number of them didn't go along with the company uh, and three of them became drug addicts. And so it was just like one of those things where I think it's, it's a purpose thing. And when you sell a company, you lose your purpose. You just need to be prepared or have like the right people around you. Because even if you have the right people around you and you're prepared, you're still going to go through this, like this moment of like, well, what do I do? I don't have to do anything. And you're like, oh, that's good because you have freedom. It's really bad because that thing that you felt you had to do really drove you a lot more than you think it did. Um, at least, you know, one guy's opinion. Oh, not, not just one guy's opinion. I, <laughs> I know it, feel it too, and I've heard it many, yeah. many times. Is that why you jumped into your new position at Paddle immediately? I think, I think, I don't know how conscious this was. I think it was really smart for me to stay. One, I, like I originally was staying because I was like, we're not done building another bite at the apple IPO in a couple of years, all this kind of thing. But I think that in, in, in hindsight, the, the drug addict piece really scared me. Like I, I have never had, um, like addiction issues of any kind. Like I just, but I know I have that personality cause it's, it's very common in the founder world. And I, it kind of scared me because I just was like, I don't really drink or do drugs, but I could see myself falling into something like that um, and getting ma more manic on certain things. But I also think that like, I don't know, I really like Christian. I really like the team. I think that there's a lot that we can do and that it's a unique part in the market. Um, and there's just, there's just a lot to do now. I don't know. Like, I think some of those things that I thought pre sale, I don't know if I was rationalizing or I was just trying to get into the moment. Other of those things, I'm kind of like, ah, that was wrong. Like, I, I think, that, like, I, I don't really know where I stand right now. Or like, put this better. Like, there were some things I was certain of in July, let's say. And those things, nothing to do necessarily with Paddle, but just about my life. I'm going to do this, then we're going to go do this, then we're going to start a new company around this and blah, blah, blah. And I, like, now I'm, like, not certain of a lot of things. <laughs> like, I'm kind of like, well, I was dumb to be that certain. And I think it was just that anxiety and that, like, purpose being rejiggered because when you go through an integration, no matter if it's big company buying small company, merger, or whatever it is, it's just, like, you're just changing everything overnight. And some of those changes you realize right away and some of those changes take a while to realize. And it's, it's just, it's really hard. It's really hard. I never understood why integrations are hard or buying a company. Everyone was like, it's terrible. It's so hard. I was like, no, not us. And I'm like, even when the product vision completely aligns, the marketing vision completely aligns, all these things completely align, it's still really hard. Um, and everyone's trying to make it, make it work. Everyone's trying to be good. And so it's just like all those things. It's just because people people are hard, you know, and you got to like combine everybody. You got to decide on new ways of doing things or pick a way of doing things. And yeah, I think, I think it's, it's a lot of like that anxious energy and that's why it was like this. And that's why we're evening out again. Um, cause we're just getting used to it and getting back to center basically. So what were, the, were those things that you did not expect to happen like that, or that took a long time to show themselves? Can you talk about it? One, yeah, yeah, yeah. One like kind of existential thing not existential but like more fluffy but really important if you're going through an acquisition i think you immediately immediately need to get your executive or leadership team together and just like do a bunch of trust building stuff i don't know if it's trust falls i don't know what it is but like you need i if i were to do this all over again and i think christian would agree with this as well um and jimmy our ceo and president as well like i think like Having a structured, we're going to have a facilitator month one, three, and six. Like that person, same person, they're going to come help us because trust, you don't realize how much trust you built with your like core team, even if you only been working together for a couple of years. And you also don't realize like how important it is to start gelling as a wider team because we thought, oh, they don't have a product leader. We have a strong product leader. Great product leader. We don't have a CMO, but we appreciate it. They have a good CMO. Oh, there's a CMO. These people are going to report to this team now. These people are going to report to this team, all this other stuff. And the team had to go through trust stuff and we didn't really understand that fully. But I think the exec team, we didn't under, we, we were like, yeah, vision makes sense. All this stuff makes sense. Let's just start talking. We kind of have similar vibes in general. 
And I think that was just really hard. Like, I don't think we, we totally under, in my opinion, I don't know. I, I think most people would have this opinion internally, but like, in my opinion, we underestimated how important trust was, um, and did not proactively try to build it. Um, and you can't do it in one meeting. So I think like having that facilitator, um, I think some other things that I thought, um, I'll speak personally. I, I was like, there's this company I want to build as a side project. I've always wanted to have a side project. I'm not good at side projects. Let me go all in. I had the deck. I had everything figured out. I was going to go do this. You know, I have the resources now. And then, uh, Heaton, uh, you know, Heaton Shaw, a good friend of mine, good friend of, you know, the indie world and the non-indie world. He was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? This is great at it. He's like, yeah, it's a great idea. You have 70 slides. Mm-hmm. You have not tested, not done your customer development, anything past the first slide. Cause mm-hmm. it was just that founder energy. It was just like, great, I'm going to do this and then we're going to optimize this. And this is how we're going to ramp up content production and all this other stuff. And he's like, you need to slow the F down. And I was like, I don't want to slow down. I want to slow down. Um, so that was another thing. I think another thing, um, time, I, I don't know. Like I'm, I still struggle with this one because I'm, I'm a very like, don't put off today what you can, or don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today type person. Not everyone's wired like that. And that doesn't mean they're ineffective. Um, there's a line like you putting it off next week, you know, is too long, but two days is fine. I'm like a day person. And I think that that was a really hard thing, especially going into, um, you know, a European company, European company, like just vacation time, like just the relationship at work is very different. Um, and it wasn't like, I never resented anyone for taking time, but you just don't realize like, wait a minute, we have to like coordinate these four schedules and those four schedules during a summer are all over the place. And you're like, well, we have this one day, Oh, someone's out sick. And now it's like, guys, what are we doing? We've got to go faster. Right. And so it's kind of like adapting to, you know, that type of, um, you know, okay, that means we need to have like more async conversations and we need to, you know, have a little more planning and we need to do those, these types of things. Um, yeah, those are a couple things, nothing, nothing like too shocking. I don't think, but I'm trying to think of some juicy, salacious things to, to bring to the podcast here. Well, there's, there's all the, there are a lot of assumptions, right? When you go into anything and uh, yeah. something like a, an acquisition of that size, if one of your assumptions doesn't, doesn't work, is not like reflecting reality and causes you a lot of stuff that, or a lot of trouble that you probably didn't want to invite into your life. So I very much get yeah. that. It's like a death by a thousand cuts kind of situation too, I would feel, right? Because there's I, so, I, many, yeah. so many ways. And there's been, there have been like a lot of cuts and no one... I think in a different mindset, they wouldn't feel like cuts. They would feel, I don't know what, they would feel like pine needle. I don't know, something, something softer than, than a cut. Um, but I think that the, the other thing is like, I think it was the right thing not to define my role because it, it, it's really hard. Like you're, you're dealing with this diligence, you're dealing with all this other stuff and you're trying to make sure that certain other people are taken care of. And my mind just wasn't in a good place to understand exactly what it was. But I did, I do think that caused a lot of anxiety on multiple fronts um, because it was like, I would get involved in a conversation and people were like, well, is Patrick doing this? Is he not doing this? How how part is it? Is he taking over this? Is he not? And then we wouldn't have like, because no one knew, like no one knew, like, is, is he, is he not? Right. And some of those things, it was very much like, Oh, this is a big problem. Go take a look. Go take a look to me means go, go fix it. Go figure it out. <laughs> um, you know, go take a look is more like, yeah, give us some thoughts, you know, that type of a thing uh, for some folks. And so I think that that was, a, I, I don't think it was a mistake because I don't think it feels like a mistake, but I don't think we could have avoided it. We probably could have like set some guardrails around it in order to like, like pause, just defining that role. Um, I think some people just expected me to kind of like rest and best. Like, like I honestly do. I don't, I don't, I haven't confronted anyone about it, but I think some people just expected that. And there's part of me that probably expected that too. Just again, that wiring isn't there. And so defining that role probably would have helped a lot or defining like, you know, submissions or where, where I was going to sink my teeth in probably would have helped. Um, and it was also just busy because there's just so much stuff, right? Like, I think that's another, not again, a mistake, but something to kind of keep in mind. We were like, yeah, yeah, everything's going to gel. Like the strategy is going to like, cause in Christian and I's head, 
it all makes sense, right? So everyone else should get it. It's like, no, you got 350 people. You got to do like a road show to make sure everyone understands. You got to like talk through things. Um, you got to make sure there's sub stuff. But it's everyone's been so well-intentioned and so like trying to figure everything out on all sides of all every coin that you could think of with this whole situation. And so I can't imagine going through a more, like I can't imagine going through an average you know, integration. Mm -hmm. Like this is definitely above average. Like everything kind of works and you know, we, we have all these systems like going through an average one. Oh my God. Like this is why a lot of them don't work. This is why I think a lot of M&A just doesn't work is because you know, it, it, you get one thing off than what I just said. It just gets really complicated. Yeah. It seems like you're well aligned, like between the, the businesses yeah. and between leadership as well. Like totally. felt... And I think, yeah, it always comes back to that because at the end of the day, it's like, well, that stuff's figured out. Mm -hmm. We can obviously figure out all this other stuff and get gelling and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I think it's, I'm looking forward to 2023 mainly because uh, um, we don't have all this other stuff. I, I described it to Christian yesterday as like, it feels like 2023 was a lot of like running in place. Cause like you make a decision on a deal, you're running in place to get the deal done. You re-budget and re-forecast because the deal went through. So now you officially can do that. And that's a lot of running in place. Then you're going through 2023 planning. It's kind of running in place. You're not like doing, and there's a bunch of doing going on, but yeah, it's just interesting. <laughs> do you think you'll ever like take a vacation? Because <laughs> it feels like you just jump from one thing into the other. I, yeah, I wonder yeah, if, you, yeah. if you're even physically able to, to relax and to kind of funny story, <laughs> funny story. Um, uh, we were in a meeting and this time thing came up um, and I won't, I, I, I haven't gotten permission to share this. So, but I won't tell you who it was, but the time thing came up like, Oh, maybe like your expectation should be, you know, two days, not an hour. Right. And it, it wasn't like, those aren't the actual numbers. And then we were talking and someone's like, maybe you should take a vacation. And that was like the most offensive thing anyone could say. <laughs> like I had not gotten defensive on anything. And then all of a sudden I, that was the most offensive thing. I was like, do not tell me. And partially because I think like I will, I love my job. So like, don't, you know, don't tell me what to do, that type of thing. And then another part of it is probably like I needed a vacation. So, but, so I took a vacation for the first time in five years in August. Um, but here's the funny story. I had so much energy like i taped taped out tapered down my meetings so i didn't have any meetings thursday or friday i still had to get some stuff done i did some work over the weekend and then on monday i was like at 12 p.m we're leaving to go wherever and so i need to get done by 12 p.m i had a meeting at 11 ended the meeting at 12 but going to the resort, we, we went in, in Puerto Rico um, where I live and I just had so much anxiety. So I just was like, I had dinner, but I just like, I was just like, couldn't, couldn't get the, the energy out. I wake up, I w this is not, I wake up at like three in the morning. I normally wake up at four, so it's not that far off. And I'm just like, I just need to go walk. So I went to the gym and I was like, I'm just going to walk until I can't walk anymore. I walked 31 miles on the treadmill. Like, just like, I was like, I need to stop. I just need to keep walking. I'm just going to keep walking. I was like, can I do a hundred thousand steps? Like that was kind of the idea. And then it got into a little bit of a mission, but I literally walked until like my lower back was just like, nope, we are done. Um, so I walked for, I think it was like 13 hours, like some crazy number like that. And then the rest of the vacation was amazing. Like it was like, I just read a bunch of books, just hung out, but I got all that, that tension out and. Uh, yeah, I'm bad at like the time off and I know it's important. I never expect anyone on my team. This is always a thing that comes up when I mention stuff like this. I just love what I do so much. Like, I feel like you and I are, you know, kindred spirits in this where I'm like, you know, this weekend I'm going to do stuff, but it's going to be like setting up my studio and like, mm -hmm. do, I get a lot of energy out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I have been getting better about, you know, taking my own advice to, to my team, which is always like schedule the next one while you're on the current one. And so you know, I'm taking next week off. I'm, you know, taking other time off, that type of a thing. So, so, so one day we'll get there. I don't know if I'll ever take more than like two weeks at a time off, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. It's, it's nice to know that you enjoy what you're doing, you know, and even, even though you might be over committing a little bit, uh, occasionally, yeah. right? No, that's it's, true. It's so... I think, you know where it comes from? It comes from, I, I've been thinking about this because it, I was like, why am I, why am I like this? I think it's, it comes from one like there's some negativity it, it comes from where when we were growing up, like 
you know, my dad was a union guy. Like there was definitely times when he like couldn't, he was on strike, you know, not getting paid, you know, we're, you know, I call it like, you know, Campbell's soup with milk. Like for those who don't know, like when you buy canned soup, I didn't know people made it with milk, like for years. Cause I was like, Oh, you just use, use water, right? You just use water. You know, that's what you have to use. That's what more poor people tend to do. Um, and so it was, it, there's some negativity. And then like the other part of it is I, I went through, um, you know, a, a, a bout with cancer, you know, right before I started getting an entrepreneurship and, it, and it's that positive, like, you know, memento more, you're going to die one day, like get everything out, you know, do make sure you, you get out there kind of energy that ends up happening. And so it's just one of those things that like, I, I, I try to like latch onto and, you know, I think, I think I could do better about, you know, this year we're doing 2023 planning as a household. And like Jenny and I are like, well, let's pick some adventures. Let's pick some things we want to do. So we're not reacting to it. And yeah, I'll get there. I'll get there. What one day I'll have a life of leisure and, you know, listen to this again and be like, ah, you, you dumb kid, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, who knows, right? These, these are the things like that. It feels like in many ways, like a post exit life is in itself, again, an entrepreneurial journey because you're in yeah. full control. Like you don't have any kind of responsibilities outside of what you choose to be responsible for. Yeah. And with that comes all the optionality and all the like the paradox of choice that you have, particularly yeah. after an exit like yours. Um, I'm glad that you're finding ways to deal with this because I feel in, in many, many ways, we under discuss the, the mental health issues that are mm -hmm. happening throughout the whole journey. Like there is a lot of risk and, and, and fear in the beginning of any business journey, but the same risk and maybe an even stronger version of that existential fear yeah. exists throughout an acquisition, potentially a potential acquisition and after, even though it is a successful thing, I think it never goes away or at least there's always a version of it to deal with. And I'm, I'm really glad that you're sharing this because Honestly, from the outside, an acquisition like this, the, the numbers involved to anybody look like the, this is just a jackpot that everybody's dreaming about, right? But that jackpot comes with a, a darker side as well. And I think to discuss this publicly, like you've been doing just now and over the last many months and years, honestly, throughout the whole journey, that is an important thing. I'm trying to do it in, in my work as well, and I'm glad you're doing it too. Thanks, man. You know, yeah. I'm just trying to learn from you about this whole build in public thing. Like why <laughs> yeah. this is like building in public, uh, you know, and all the advantages and disadvantages, but I don't want to start another hour on that because uh, I've yeah. already learned so much from you on that. So yeah, it's good. I, I guess we should do that another time. <laughs> we'll do that, that another time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm glad you're interviewing folks. It's been, it's been fun to kind of like, you know, I, I, I think I liked the other, the other content too. And I think you should continue that too, but I think mm -hmm. it's a good, a good mix and stuff yeah. like that. Cause you ask really, really, really good questions. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. Honestly, in, in many ways, this is also a, a mental health coping mechanism for myself. Like I'm sitting here in my little unfinished basement in Canada. And yeah. every every day I'm like, well, I'm just sitting in my basement. I want to talk to people. And to have yeah, the platform yeah, of the podcast is is amazing because not only can I talk to people, which is great, but learn from learning from people at the same time, amazing. And being able to share this with the community, that's my jackpot, right? And uh, all of this has, again, been enabled by my own software exit as well, right? There are so many things you can do. And I've fortunately found something that kind of drives my passion forward. And I see you finding similar things or figuring out how to find it as well, which is nice. And um, maybe let's, let's close with what's going to happen professionally in your future. You just said you had a side project, but people are discouraging you from that. Then you have the whole um, paddle situation. What do you think is going to happen in the next couple months or years in, in, the, in the world of payment, online payment and pricing that you're a part of? Ooh, so yeah, in terms of an industry, I think it's actually going to be really, it, it's going to be fascinating. I think it's going to be fascinating because, um, you know, Gumroad raised their prices uh, mm -hmm. and a lot of people freaked out, but, and I think it, I think the main reason that they, they freaked out was because the communication was a little there wasn't really a why and then there wasn't a like a in the context of the customer because um, we, we've done a lot of price increase emails you know with our pricing product and basically like you always want to make it about them not about you you always want to explain what's going on and you know the communication wasn't it wasn't hey inflation costs went up you know we're going to raise our prices but it was it wasn't it wasn't not that you know and so i think it's it, that that was the trouble there but 
in listening to Sahil, who was on, you know, this podcast as well, like the reasoning makes total sense. Like you have this world where he's Gumroad is what's called a merchant of record, which is also what paddle is. There's some other folks who are these, these merchant of records. And I didn't understand paddles business when we were going through like the sale process until Christian was like explaining the org chart basically. And I was like, why do you have nine people in a risk department? Why do you have 10 people in a tax department? I don't understand. And he was just like, well, they need to handle all these constituencies for sales tax for digital products. And we need to, we take on the risk of our customers. So if their chargebacks are bad, Paddle's chargebacks are bad. And if they're really bad, they get kicked off Visa. They get kicked off Visa, the world ends, right? For Paddle, right? So I was like, oh, interesting. It's very expensive. Like it's extremely expensive. And so when, you know, Sahil was talking about Gumroad, I was like, oh yeah, like this is what's happening. Like the, the era of 0% interest rates, those are gone for a while. And when that happens, you only have so many levers to, to grow. And I think what's interesting about, you know, him and Substack is that a lot of those creators do not care. Like they do not care. The people who care, like, are going to go to a paddle, which is at 5% or a lemon squeezy, which is at 5%, or they're going to try to spin it up themselves using Stripe and realize, oh, it actually costs 8% on Stripe. That's what a lot of people don't realize. Like all in international payments on Stripe is like eight to 10, maybe 11%. Um, and you have to do all the work to set it up versus like a paddle where you kind of combine everything. So I think what's going to happen in the space and payments is the cost is going to go up, you know, overall, and it's going to push people to, you know, accept a Gumroad payment, go to a paddle, go to a lemon squeezy, um, go to like a charge B with some add-ons versus going straight to Stripe. Stripe's still going to make money because Stripe's on the back end of all of these yeah. products. Um, and I think that it's going to help us sell more internationally. And when you can sell more internationally, I think ultimately um, businesses grow. I think they, they just grow because you have such a huge denominator um, you know, when you go out of your home region. So I think that's, that's what a lot of stuff's going to happen. Um, and then I think that from a personal perspective, um, right now, this is a little shocking and I hope I don't offend anyone who's been following the journey, but like, I don't know if I want to sell to B2B SaaS in the next thing. Um, you know, I've been doing this for a decade. I think I'm going to do it for a few more years. And then I'm like, I don't want to be the cliche B2B founder who's like, let's do a consumer thing. But I do think, um, I do want to do something that's a little bit more um, like, and I think helping B2B companies grow is very impactful, but maybe something that's a little more obviously impactful. Um, I've been exploring like the defense industry, um, exploring, you know, the, the death industry, which is really fascinating, um, debt, uh, insurance industries, these types of things. We'll, we'll see what happens. Like I have a, I hired a team of researchers who's like going deep on stuff just in the background in parallel. Um, cause I think like those things are really interesting and you know, I've been thinking about B2B SaaS for a long time. And so I think it's like, you know, I'll probably end up coming back cause that's what most, most founders do for their second acts. But yeah, we'll just, we'll just see. We'll see. Yeah. That, that sounds like a, a nice little hedge again right because yeah, you, you don't you don't need to make this choice which is the greatest thing about it right you can say yeah maybe we'll see let's yeah, see what yeah, what yeah. research turns up and where to take it from here that sounds yeah. that sounds wonderful thanks for that um assessment of the the industry going forward um it's, cer it's certainly an interesting time let's just say that right like for yeah. the for the whole payment industry for how people conduct their business online i'm i'm also looking forward to seeing like the long-term effects not just a public outcry over people raising their prices in what is by all experts called a, 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 yeah what is it uh one second a recession right like if there is a recession going on stuff will happen and you'll have to see through it and make choices that keep your business alive so we'll we'll see a lot of, of that as well i would assume I think the thing to think about is what comes after the recession. So the recessions average about 18 months. Um, this one, and, and then it, sometimes it's another six to 12 before we realize we're out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of depends. And so I don't, this looks, it looks like the beginning of 2008, but we don't have these giant exogenous things that, you know, like the housing market that makes it a 2008. So I, I think this is, you know, average to lower than average, um, at least in my opinion, but economists only make predictions in the past. So, you know, don't hold me to it. 
But I think it's like what comes after, because I think that's where it gets really interesting just in business in general, right? Like if you're, if you're thinking about, you know, a cool product in a cool space, like keep going. But if you're thinking about the industry as a whole, which obviously we need to, because we think about, you know, we serve this industry, it, 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 it it's going to get weird because like, I don't know if we're going to go back to this 0% world that we were in for so long, because there isn't necessarily a huge advantage to it. Um, but then there's a bunch of other stuff that happened in the last couple of years that's affecting the economy, like, you know, supply chain, all this other stuff. So I don't know. It's, it's going to be a, you know, again, economists only make predictions in the past. So we'll see. I like that. We'll see. I think it applies to almost everything we talked about today, right? Of course. F future, personal, professional, economy, individual things. things. We'll see where it takes us. Well, where will people be able to see where your life is going to go over the next yeah, yeah. couple of months? Where do you want people to follow you? Yeah, just follow me on Twitter, Paticus, P-A-T-T-I-C-U-S. And then, uh, yeah, we'll rock from there. Thanks so much, Pat. That was really insightful. Thanks for showing Appreciate up. Appreciate it. Awesome. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening to The Bootstrap Founder. You can find me on Twitter at Avid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L, and you'll find my books here to sold and The Embedded Entrepreneur on my Twitter course. Find your following there as well. If you want to support me and The Bootstrap Founder, please follow my YouTube channel, subscribe to the podcast, the podcast player of choice, and leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. Any of this will help the show. So thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.